The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we ask again as we just prayed, would you draw near to illumine us, to shine not just into the room here, but spiritually to shine into our hearts, to cause us to see, to cause us to see Christ, to see him in this passage that we have before us, to see what you have done and are doing in him, through him, for us, cause us to see. Lord, one of the, one of the beauties in stories, one of the beauties in the fact that you have taught us in stories is that they stick with us and we remember them. And one of the pitfalls is that we remember them and they can become familiar and maybe too familiar. We are familiar with the passage in front of us today. We know the facts. We know what happened. But would you cause us to see to see what it's about and what it means for us. And when you cause us to worship, to give thanks, give thanks for what you have done. Will you clear away all of that, Lord, that, that tendency in us that, that kind of overlooks and takes for granted. Would you clear that away and, and give us fresh eyes to see? Will you clear away physical distractions that would that would draw our attention away even in this time. You are a good God and have done something marvelous for us in Jesus that we tend to overlook and in fact turn away from. Most of us here, Lord, are believers and we, we know these facts, but perhaps there are some here or some who will hear this who don't know you yet, Lord. Would you please call them to you and save? Save this morning, please. Make the scripture clear. Spirit of God, move through the room now and teach us and guide us towards Jesus. Build us up for his glory and for our good. Thank you. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Luke chapter 23, where we've been looking at the events of Jesus' betrayal and arrest at night in the Garden of Gethsemane, followed by his trial then before the Jewish leadership. And through all of that, the portrait of Jesus that has emerged is consistent. He is humble meek, gracious, and totally in control of it all. He knows what's coming beforehand. He sees through the hypocrisy in Judas and in the Jewish leadership, but doesn't, doesn't stop them. In fact, he stops his disciples from stopping the arrest. And he even heals the servant who gets wounded in the little struggle. He knows Peter will betray him, tells him that beforehand. And he deliberately tells the Jewish leadership exactly what they need so as to condemn him in the eyes of Rome and to condemn him in the eyes of the people. He sees, he knows, and he's controlling everything. He's running the whole event to make sure that it happens. He's using his sovereign power, his, his authority, not to protect himself or to, to save himself, but to redeem, to accomplish redemption, particularly, as we saw last week, particularly for people like Peter, people like us who have done things that we shouldn't have done and are ashamed of it. Peter never thought he would abandon Jesus or deny that he was one of Jesus', Jesus followers, but he did. And when he did so, he discovered what he was capable of discovered what was in him, and he was ashamed of himself. As we said last week, Peter, in a sense here, met the real Peter. Peter met himself. 
And sometimes we meet ourselves, the, the true selves that we are, or at least a little more of the true selves that we are, and we see what we've done, we, we see what's in us, see what we're capable of doing, see that we, we thought we were beyond something, but we aren't. It still is what we're, what we're like, and maybe we see the consequences of that or how it hurts other people because of what we are, what we've done, and we, we, something hits us, and we are burdened by that and disappointed in ourselves and ashamed. This is more than just plain old guilt. We can look at something and say, I know I shouldn't have done that. But shame strikes a little deeper. It mixes in painful embarrassment with guilt. Disappointment in self. That's where Peter is. He went out and wept bitterly. You feel terrible like that. You want to crawl under a rock and if you could scrape that off of you, but you can't scrape it off of you because it's you, as you just discovered. But right there, the good news is that right there in that, not, not separate from that, but right there in that, you might also meet Jesus in a new way. You meet yourself in a new way. You might also meet Jesus in a new way because that you that you just met, that real you, that's the version of you that he always knew existed. That's the version of you that he loved with an everlasting love and came to exercise all of that authority so as to redeem that one, that you. That's the one he has always seen. That's the one he has said, mine, my beloved. That's the one that he came to make sure that he was sacrificed for so as to redeem. To put it in terms of the story, he knew Peter was going to do this, and that's why he's in the courtyard, bound, beaten, mocked, scorned, shamed, and humiliated to save that Peter, that one. That's the one he loves and longs to have a part of his body, part of his bride. And if you, if you put those two things together, you see here is the release, here's the great remedy to shame. Shame for the things that we've done. It, it's not, not to hide them or deny them or, or push them away, but to realize Jesus has always seen that and that's why he came in love to save me. That one, I'm loved I'm not less loved now that this has been discovered. And I can't be more loved. I'm loved with a wide and long and high and deep love by this Savior, Jesus. Christian, that's true of you. If you're not a Christian, it would be true of you if you became one. There's release here. There's joy here. This is good news. That's what we considered last week. But the story continues on. We're in the middle of the trial, which brings us into chapter 23 now. We saw the trial before the Jewish leadership, three quasi-trials, and now here we come to the, the official political leadership, Roman, three more quasi-trials this morning. So we're going to read all of verses 1 to 25, and then I'll pass back through and, and make a couple of observations about it, two, two points I'll draw out. And again, as I prayed, this is familiar to us, but listen and, and engage with it. I'm going to read chapter 23, verses 1 to 25. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. 
When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he'd heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. Before this, they had been in enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Luke 23. Two observations. Here's the first. Jesus is righteous, but the world is in unrighteousness rejects him anyway. Jesus is righteous, but the world in unrighteousness rejects him anyway. This is a long passage, and this lengthy passage serves an, an important historical purpose. Luke's original readers, and in fact everybody always we need to know the basic facts of this story. This, this story is more important than many other historical facts in the Gospels. You know, Jesus had lunch with a Pharisee one day. That, that's nice, but not as important as this story. It's important that we know what happened. So Luke tells us, the Gospels all tell us, and there's importance and value in just noting, here's what happened. Here's the historical event, how it is that Jesus was crucified. But like any historian, Luke tells us this story with certain points of emphasis that we're supposed to pay particular attention to. Certain things are emphasized for us to reflect on, and one clear point in these 25 verses of history is that Jesus is innocent of all accusations. Jesus is righteous, even in the eyes of the impartial human judges that sit over him. The Jewish ruling council, of course, it's not impartial. We've already seen this. They've concluded that he must be destroyed because he's a threat to their own power. This is last week, verses 67 and 68. They will not engage with the evidence. They don't want to think about what he says or what he does. They've just decided he must go because I'm threatened by him. So they condemn him, and they bring him early on Friday morning to Pilate, who's the Roman governor of the area, because he's the one who actually has the authority to execute Jesus, which is their desired goal. So he stands before Pilate, and and then Herod, who's a Roman-appointed Jewish king from the area. Effectively, he's kind of beneath Pilate, but has some own authority himself. And then back before Pilate. So there's three more quasi-trials here. And the verdicts, verse 4, Pilate, I find no guilt in this man. Verse 14, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Verse 15, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, Nothing deserving death has been done here. I will punish him and release him. 
Verse 20, Pilate desired to release him. 22, for a third time. What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. So I'll punish him and release him. The Jewish leaders charged Jesus with three things in verse 2. Misleading the nation, forbidding them to pay tribute to Caesar, and claiming to be Messiah, a rival king. And Pilate examined him, and the other Gospels make clear that he, that he gave him a thorough trial in the presence of his, accusa- of his accusers. Luke gives us, as usual, the abbreviated version. He gave him a full trial, a proper trial. He hears the charges and then says again and again, there's nothing here. Nothing. There's no guilt here. He's not guilty of any of the charges that you brought against him. He eventually agrees to punish him a little bit, but that's not for any crime. That's just to appease the people, hoping that they'll let him go if he hurts him a little bit. Jesus is obviously righteous in Pilate's and in Herod's eyes, and Luke repeatedly tells us so that we hear. This is an official trial. This is Pilate on the bench banging the gavel, not guilty. We need to hear that, and then he also shows us that. Can you imagine being the prisoner in this farce with your life on the line? I'd say something. They say I forbid the people from paying tribute. That's exactly the opposite of what I said. I said I held up a coin. Who, people were there, lots of people were there. Caesar's, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. I actually told them to pay tribute, not forbid it. This is crazy. That, that'd be me. And I'd be able to argue my case well because all the facts are on my side. I'm innocent. That'd be me agitated. Probably most of us. Because you know your life is on the line and you see this thing dragging out. He banged the gavel and said, not guilty. Why am I still chained up? This isn't good. This isn't good. It's still going on. But Jesus remains calm and meek even. He gives a subdued answer when asked if he's the Christ. He's silent when questioned and accused and mocked before Herod. And he never gets angry and never denounces and never struggles against the process. There's nothing but meekness here. This is a silent lamb led to slaughter. This is the same Jesus we have seen throughout. Righteous and innocent and submissive in point of fact with the verdict and in manner and demeanor. Luke tells us that. Luke shows us that both so that we understand that this is the righteous one all the way through even up to the very end. He's righteous. And he also repeatedly emphasizes something else so that we hear and see it too. Jesus is righteous, but the world is unrighteous and rejects Jesus anyway. All the world does. Everybody in this passage. The Jewish leadership, obviously, they deliberately mislead, they falsely accuse, they try to get Pilate to think Jesus is stirring up the crowds, then they stir up the crowds. Crowds and leaders together are urgent, verse 5, vehement, verse 10, crying out and shouting for and urgently demanding with loud cries that Jesus be crucified. Verses 18 and following. They ask for a murderer and an insurrectionist to be released to them instead. These are unrighteous rulers and unrighteous masses of people rejecting the righteous one. And the same goes for Pilate and Herod, too. Pilate comes to the right verdict at first. But he doesn't release Jesus like he should. He wants to, but he doesn't. And little by little, he caves to public opinion. He's not guilty of any charges at all. Why beat him? 
let alone why kill him. He wants to appease the unjust crowd, but that doesn't work. And finally, their voices prevailed, not their arguments, their voices. And he gives in and enacts an unjust sentence. This is a Roman governor sitting on the bench saying, not guilty, kill him anyway. It's the definition of injustice. But he doesn't do that until after he lets Herod use him for his amusement. Herod's not interested in justice either. Herod has been anxious to see. One of the things emphasized about Herod, he's anxious to see him. He wanted to see a miracle. He's been hearing about these miracles. It'd be cool to see one. That's the point of the questioning, to invite Jesus over to see what he'll do. And when he doesn't make a show for them, he makes a show of him. Herod and the guards, the soldiers, mock him and dress him up in fine clothing and send him back to his death. All the characters and all categories of people in this passage, all but Jesus, are in one way or another unrighteous. Jew and Gentile alike, powerful named people, unnamed soldiers and crowds. Here is all the world. All the world represented in this chapter. All arrayed against Jesus in one way or another. Hatred or indifference, plotting, not really caring very much. People talk and people argue and people shout and people get carried away and before lunchtime, the righteous one is hanging on a cross. This is the greatest crime ever committed. It's the greatest sin of all time. The righteous one is rejected by the world and condemned to death without just cause. Unrighteousness, darkness carries the day. We should read that to know what happened. But we can't just read that to say Here's some evidence about how bad people were back then. It is about them. But Luke's point in showing us all of these categories of people and all these details is to clarify it's Jesus and the world. It's Jesus and everybody else back then because that's what the world is. That's what the world still is. That's us. If we'd been there, we'd be on one side of the ledger. Not on Jesus' side, asked Peter. Here's the world, all of the world, and there is no one righteous, no, not one. This is the human condition. This is humanity fallen. All of us are unrighteous in our fallen natures, resistant to the Lord in different ways. In different ways. We see some of those differences here in this passage. The leaders respond and resist, different than the crowds do, sure. And, and Herod sees just, just a possibility of amusement and nothing worth really thinking seriously about. And, and Pilate knows what's right, but is in fear of man unable to do it. They're all different. It's not intended to be exhaustive, but it's representative. Maybe you see yourself in one of those categories. Maybe you don't, but it all comes from the same place. It comes from the human heart, which is fallen and twisted by sin. And so, this is what the Bible says about people. This is what we're like in our humanity. Definitely before becoming a Christian, but even still, as Christians, we still have fallen natures within us, and we still are inclined to walk away from Jesus, prone to wander is what we are. With this nature in us, we, we fail to accurately perceive truth, what's going on around us, and we fail to accurately evaluate it, and we don't properly desire and want. Even as Christians, but all of us, we all are fallen. 
with a fallen perception, a fallen understanding, and fallen insight, and fallen desires. We are unrighteous, and therefore we do unrighteousness. And that shows itself in all of life, but particularly, most acutely, in how we separate ourselves from the righteous one and walk, preferably, we walk into the darkness. There's something insane in us that prefers Barabbas. going to take us to the second point eventually, but first we're, we're still here. This is the human problem and it, it is wrong. It is wrong in the sense of that sin that's to be judged, but also beyond that, it is incredibly tragic and troubling. See both here, wrong and sin, but troubling because what we're left with is a wrestling with the consequences of sin. And oftentimes we don't, we don't recognize first and foremost sin. We, we, don't, we don't see it as I'm rejecting righteousness. We see it as why doesn't this work and what's going on and why am I struggling with X or Y? We see consequences. We don't often see root causes. We, in our unrighteousness, turn away from, this this is the essence of unrighteousness, that we turn away from the righteous one and prefer by our own wisdom and our own understanding to walk off into darkness and then try to build life with what we find there. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work in two senses. It doesn't work in that we try, to, we try to put together relationships, we try to put together communities, we try to make things just and right. It runs through our fingers because we can't do what we aren't. It doesn't work in that sense. But often for me, really, I think for me, the part that doesn't work is worse than that. I bump into the It doesn't work when I'm all by myself alone at night wondering what is going on. Maybe you've been there where you're thinking, that person says I've got the perfect life. I hate my life because it makes no sense to me. They love, they they are so envious of my house and my job and my perfect family. And I go home at night and close the door and I know that we sit there in silence and I wonder, is this all there is? I step out in the yard and I smile and everybody envies me. They'd pity me if they knew where I actually lived. When I talk about how it doesn't work, that's, I think, more important. We in this country have the ability to carry ourselves along for some time with with many blessings and many benefits and many nice things, but we are an incredibly, I think, I can't speak for everybody, all 300 million of us, but I think there's a hollowness there. It doesn't work. To walk away from him and to feel our way forward in our own wisdom according to our own values feels like freedom and actually is bondage and death. And the crazy thing is that we are prone to it. We should be captured by this righteous one, but instead in our mix of bias and prejudice and frivolity and fear, we reject and turn away from, crazy as it is, we reject and turn away from the good and holy, meek, mighty to bless, compassionate, wise, pure, honest, true, 
trustworthy one and say, no, I'll go my own way. That's what we're prone to. That is crazy. And it is common. It characterizes what we are before we become Christians and even what we tend towards. What we, if, if, we, if we sit, we find we lean towards that way. If we walk aimlessly, we find our, our feet leading us in that direction. We are prone to wander to reject such a one and turn away from him is wrong, yes, and tragic and troubling. Here is all of the world seeing all of the gospel of Luke and saying, kill him. That is insane. And what happened and what still happens Even in us. Even in us. So there's a testimony to that here in this passage, but there's also something else. I see that, and we also need to see the God who has acted to overcome and redeem from it. Which brings us to the second observation. The righteous one is condemned so that the unrighteous can go free. The righteous one is condemned so that the unrighteous can go free. In verse 18, Luke presents to us the cry of the rulers and the crowds together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. First time we've heard of him. Barabbas, as we are told in verse 19, and again for emphasis at the end in verse 25, Barabbas is a man who was thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. He is a man in whom there is very much guilt deserving death, very much seeking to stir up the people, very much a threat to Rome, and therefore a threat to the people in the city and the peace of the city. He's trying to start a war. And he's a murderer. Why would the crowds be calling for his release? Well, not because they really want him free, but because someone's going to be freed and they don't want Jesus. Roman officials sometimes had a custom in their various territories, and Pilate followed suit with this, that at the time of a local festival or an important celebration, like, for instance, the Passover, one of the local people that Rome had caught and convicted would be pardoned as a gracious PR gesture, as a public relations gesture. So, here's a chance to do that. And amazingly, verse 25, the man who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, they asked for him. This is the same week of the triumphal entry. Earlier in the week, the same week, he'd ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds were delirious and excited with joy. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Jesus. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It is a tremendous moment. And Pilate does not see this coming because now inexplicably they are crying out about the same guy, crucify him, crucify him. Release to us the murderer and the rebel. He's the one we want. So they choose and insist on, and their voices prevailed. And so Pilate unjustly decided, now the right PR move is to give them what they want. If I don't do that, it'll be actually counterproductive. So he hands him over and released the murderous revolutionary. Pilate did not see this coming. But God did. This all is happening according to the plan and under the control of God, under the awareness and control of Jesus. We've seen that several times already. Luke will bring up, once again, these specific people in Acts chapter 4. 
Verse 27, reiterating God's control over all this. There in Acts chapter 4, the church is praying and says, praying to God, Lord, in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's their prayer. Your plan and hand, plan and control of events to accomplish plan. There's something going on here on purpose. More than just Jesus knows the future. God sees what's going to happen in the future. More than that, we have plan carried out. This is predestined. Pre, beforehand, destined, ahead of time. So the church prayed in Acts 4. Pilate didn't see it coming in the moment. The crowds themselves had no idea they would be saying this at the beginning of the week. You can bet that Barabbas was surprised. But God planned it. All of it. Exactly like this. God gathered all of these ones together beforehand to bring about so that it would happen like he wanted it to happen, even down to the detail of Barabbas. Focus on Barabbas here. Barabbas isn't necessary. We could really easily see this story. We see the, the trajectory of this story, and we could see it, them yelling out for Jesus to be crucified and Pilate just saying, okay, and doing it. No need for Barabbas. The Jewish leadership certainly didn't have any idea that he would play into this. He, he's actually irrelevant to their goal. But in the plan of God... God provided this way to explain his plan. In the providence of God, Roman practice brings Pilate to Jerusalem at just this time, at the time of the Passover, with his inclination, according to policy, to let one who deserves the right wrath of Rome, to let him go free. Who should it be? It should be the righteous one, of course. That's what Pilate thinks. He's done nothing to deserve the wrath of the law. The wrath hangs rightly over wicked Barabbas. But God provides a substitute for Barabbas. Having predestined that Barabbas would stand there and watch the wrath pass over him and fall onto the righteous, innocent lamb instead. The Barabbas would stand there and say, Him for me. It should have been Barabbas. They had an execution scheduled that day already, right? There were two other guys. Three crosses. The third one was his. But Jesus took his place, was condemned instead of, in the place of Barabbas so that the murderer could go free instead of Jesus, the righteous one. In the providence and plan, controlled plan of God, here's a picture of the gospel. An explanation of what's going on. God enacted physically and circumstantially showing what's going on in the spiritual realm and is unseen. In the wisdom of God, a righteous one has been provided who never did anything that deserves any kind of punishment, who bears no guilt himself, seen and spoken, never sinned, who never deserved the punishment of sin in the eyes of a holy God, who never deserved curse and death. It should have been Barabbas. It should have been everyone else in this passage. It should have been all of us. But it was him. Him. 
There is no one righteous, no, not one, but the glory of the gospel of God is that He has provided in that righteous one a substitute death. So that we who are unrighteous can walk free. Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous in place of the unrighteous, to bring us to God, to set us free, and not just free out of jail, free to God. We don't know anything else about Barabbas. His story ends right here. But we know more about what God is picturing in Barabbas. The salvation that God has made for us is a freedom from and a freedom to is a freedom from bondage and to liberty, from the rule of self, from the rule of Satan, to the rule of God. It is out of prison onto a throne. This is the glory of the gospel seen here, depicted here in this actual event. What happened? God's laid down a marker to show it to us. There is one provided who can set you free. And it works. A real substitute exists. And his name is Jesus, the righteous one. And he's available to anyone who wants him. He's available not just to good people. There aren't any. Not just to people who grew up understanding him with a certain respect for him. Not just for Westerners or for Americans. Not just for certain races or ethnicities. He's the Savior of the world. Of any and every unrighteous person who says, I sit in jail deserving death and I need to be set free. I can't do it. Help. Jesus, set me free. Wrath is coming to me. Please step into my place. Let it pass over me unto you. He will do that, and he does do that for those who come to him in surrendered faith. Freedom from wrath like Barabbas. And better, freedom to life. Think back to the first point. The essence of, of the problem is not just that we turn away from God, and that's wrong. That is indeed wrong, and that's true. But then, having turned away from God, we live apart from the one for whom we were made. And nothing works. Both those senses that I talked about. So what God so graciously does when he provides this substitute Savior for us, is he indeed, yes, like, like off of Barabbas, he removes the penalty of wrath and, and deposits it on Jesus. But then he does more. He, he redeems in a moment and then begins a process of redemption. He makes us different people progressively, day by day by day by day by day, redeeming. He's committed to it in his power, to redeeming you. Not just letting you out of jail, but making you fresh and new, clean, holy. This is the sweetest thing. We, we can sit in the first point and say, there is an insanity in me. There is an insanity in me. It's there. We can sit in that and then bring the second point here alongside of it and say, God help, God help. I'm a Christian, and the insanity still lives in me. God help. And he says, yes, yes. You actually don't know the depth of the insanity. I do. I'm committed to that. I'm committed to addressing and unwinding. I untie the knots. I fix. I heal. That's what he does for his people, for you.
Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. So Jesus does not step into our lives and, and just say, let me, let me give you some advice about how to work your business. Let me tell you how to, how to be a better husband. There, that's the help he gives. That's there, that's there. But the freedom comes as he brings us to God. Remember, that's the essence of the problem, that we walk away from God. He brings us back to God, the one for whom we were made. He brings us into relationship with him. He brings us into communion with him. He overcomes our bent to reject. Like a good parent says, come back, come back, come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. And draws us back into fellowship with this one. And in his presence we see, we understand, we value more properly. We grow. We, we should stand in front of that and say, thank God. We are, ourselves are too weak. We are too small. We are too foolish to know how to sort out us. Thank God that God is committed to sorting out us. That we, that we have a sure promise, Christian, you have a sure promise that you will stand, not just let out of jail and left as you are, but you will stand one day free from penalty and free from all of sin's influence and the destruction on you. You'll stand clean, made new, because God's committed to it. Not because we are, because God is. That's good news. And when thinking about that, so I, so I do nothing because God's committed to it. I'm not committed to it. He does all the work. I just kind of hang out. No, no, no. Because he's committed to it, then we can know. When he, when he speaks to me, when he says, here, come and pray, read, sit at my feet and listen to me, we, we know that there's something in that. It's kind of like when when your mom says, if you come into the kitchen, there might be fresh cookies. Come into the kitchen. Because there might be fresh cookies. She means there are. Come into my word. Come into my presence. There might be food for your soul there. There might be renewal of your heart there. You might find me there. Because you will. You will. This is a story that's very familiar to us in all of its facts. And the facts themselves are important. As we pass back through it, we see a couple of things. We see that there is a Jesus who is righteous in a world that isn't. That insanely turns away from him despite all the good that he is. And then we see there's a God who set down a testimony here, but I'm going to conquer that. I'm going to overcome that and set people free by substitute sacrifice. That's good news. For that, we can be thankful that he is righteous and draws us into his presence and grows in us righteousness. He changes us, makes us more like him for our great good and for his honor. Let me pray. Father, we look at this event in this passage, and there is, I think, on first take, something in us that just says, that's really wrong. Jesus gets shafted here, and that's really wrong. 
And Father, will you cause us to see in it again something that testifies to your deliverance. You went there willingly. You went to that place willingly to deliver us. Grow in us, Lord, grow in us thankfulness. Grow in us rest. Grow in us a desire to draw near. And will you meet us? Will you, will you fix our, our broken hearts? We're going to gather here and we're going to eat together and, and think about things for which we are thankful. And it is not wrong. It is, in fact, right to be thankful for all things. You tell us that. But will you kindle in us and keep burning in us a thankfulness for your desire to save people like us? Fallen, who turned away from you. Thank you for that. Grow in us thankfulness for that and a freshness in it. Thanks, Lord. We trust this to you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.